a little word of warning that this podcast contains swears and use of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18 or anyone who thinks an open house is only for estate agents. Hello all and welcome back to Smutrop. This is your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane and on this week's show I'll be looking at making condoms great again, chatting to Dr Laurie Beth Bisbee about consensual non-consent and delving into the fun bags for your queries and questions. If you like what you hear then please rate, review or at least subscribe wherever you get your finest of podcasts and I hope you're ready because I'm about to tickle your feathers. Hello, 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 dearest listener. Okay, quick question. How do you feel about condoms? Now, look, I'm of an age and an era where condoms are pretty obligatory until you've got the ring on your finger and a joint mortgage. Do you know what I mean? We are double packing, baby. Uh, But some of you have fallen out of favour with the humble feather tickler, and I do not know why. Sexual wellness brand Love Honey did a recent survey in the UK, and they found that 36% of men felt encouraged to have sex without the use of contraception after watching porn. Oh, come on. When has that been a good standard bearer for having sex? No. Not only that, but 18% of singles said the reason they don't like putting a condom on is because it makes sex less spontaneous. Oh, so does having a baby or gonorrhea. Another 11% said it was a mood killer. (laughs) Herpes is a mood killer. And look, it shows because STIs have seen a 24% year-on-year increase in the UK. And we've got a whole new STI now. What about MGen? Come on, kids. It won't spoil the mood. But not using a condom is definitely going to spoil other things. Lisa Holgarten, Head of Publicity and Public Affairs at Brooke, which, as we know, is a brilliant sexual health charity, told metro.co.uk that the high level of gonorrhea clearly tells us there is insufficient condom use. This is also reflected in what we're seeing in our own clinics, where, over the past four years, the number of people saying they do not use condoms has increased by over 10%. Oh, come on, people. And feeling that's not even an excuse anymore. We've got ribs and dots and and all sorts. Durex, they're currently looking for testers of their new ultra-thin nude model and are even willing to pay you £100 for the, uh, well, (laughs) for the pleasure. (laughs) So if the thought of STIs and unplanned pregnancies still haven't made condoms cool for you, then there is a brilliant article with lots of people's stories and opinions over at metro.co.uk. Just look for the article, That's a Wrap, How Condoms Became Cool on metro.co.uk. But obviously not before my fabulous chat with this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this week's guest is a clinical psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, and has been helping people create and sustain meaningful relationships for over 30 years. We love her insights on consensual non-monogamy and kink, 
And you might know her as the specialist relationship therapist on Open House, The Great Sex Experiment on Channel 4. I want to chat to her about how we can begin to explore the intense form of intimacy known as consensual non-consent. It's Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee. Hello, Dr. Laurie. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so happy to have you. And I do have to ask because I watched Open House, The Great Sex Experiment, Experiment with a friend of mine and we were shouting at the telly quite a lot not you obviously you were the beacon of sensibleness but there were some people that I was like oh do you not get it so please tell me what it was like on open house so you know we've done two series um and I had an absolute blast doing this show I'm hoping we'll have season three um mm. keep our fingers crossed at the moment actually season two they split showing it so season two is live right now on Fridays. One of the things that I is so is, I find so amusing is that every time I ask the couples, is there anything that you want to make off limits, right? Because it, it, it'll be challenging for you and this is your first time. And like more than half the couples say kissing. For some reason, when people think about it, they think about actual intimate kissing as being something that is to do with love and not sex in some way. Um, so it's not an unusual thing for people to go, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave this off limits. But, um, oh my God, they make this rule for themselves. And I say very clearly, okay, so that's going to be the rule you're going to live with tonight. I just want to remind you, no matter how excited you get, please do not break that boundary while you're really excited, because it often backfires because people aren't making rational choices and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Mm. And I can't tell you every single time, every <laughs> single time. So every single time they break the boundary. And of course, I don't know because I don't actually see what goes on in the evening. I get a report. Oh. So I see, I see the couple. We have a session. Um, which is a lot longer than what you see on television. Like it could be anywhere up to 90 minutes. Average is like 45 with like a, like an ordinary sort of therapy session. And then I send them off to do an activity and they go do that activity. I, I'm not part of that. And so um, if you haven't watched the show, there are a group of residents that are um, sexually adventurous residents, and which means they're up for stuff with consent. So one of the differences between season one and season two was season one, people really had no idea what they were letting themselves in for. So we got a lot of people who actually weren't non-monogamous, mm. whereas, you know, they were kind of experimenting like as part of the residence, whereas season two, people had watched the show and they came deliberately for the experience. Mm. So the residents were much more educated and experienced, which I think made it easier for the couples. Mm. However, I would not see this. So I would hear about it and I'd get a report as to a bit about what went on before I saw the couple the next day. And so I come in, they'd come in and I'd say, well, you know, how did it go? But with the kissing thing, I, I would always hear about it. And in one, one of those episodes, the couple sits down and I'm like, did we not say, <laughs> right? Did you not agree this rule and then break the rule? <laughs> and it's such a strange hill to die on that. I always, whenever someone says, oh, I don't want them to kiss me and my mate, we just turn around to me. Oh no, not going to happen. Not going to like, so you're happy to have someone's 
dick in your mouth or you're happy to go watch him go down on someone. You're all happy with that, but it's the kissing, is it? That's that's the thing. Well, what's so interesting about that, though, is that there are a lot of sex workers who don't kiss their clients mm. and reserve that to their relationship. So it, as the, although I find it really bizarre, personally, yeah. like that would not be the hill I would die on, right? Yeah. Um, personally, to me, kissing's an integral part and the difference between... Well, I'm polyamorous, so I have deep relationships with my partners. Mm. But um, if I were having a casual sexual experience, the difference between casual and deep doesn't have to do with the activity I'm involved in. Mm. It's what I'm bringing to the activity. Mm. I really, the show is great. I mean, I'm really impressed with all the people who took part. And I don't know if people know, but it's completely unscripted. It's so, I mean, it showed the first, one of the first episodes showed a massive orgy happening, which I was like, oh, we're we're in there. Oh, I see. (laughs) That was quite exciting. And it's really funny too, because it's like how the press deals with this is hysterical. So there was this big uproar when there were the two orgies Mm. on this season. And there was this whole thing. And the headline was, I'm the sex therapist that helped to create a 15 person orgy or an 18 person orgy. And I wasn't shocked by it at all. (laughs) And I wasn't. And so in the article, it said I orchestrated an orgy. And I was like, I had nothing to do with that. Right. The people, (laughs) the people who were, were consenting to have sex, the group of them said, Hey, let's have an orgy. Right. That's how that happened. But I thought it was hysterical because there was this all this moral thing about me orchestrating this. And my husband was saying he wanted to get me T-shirts that say, I orchestrate orgies. And then on the back, ask me how. <laughs> I was going to say, you seem like the kind of person that would have that headline framed and put next to your like clinical psychologist document. I love it. I mean, it's like, it's like so on the first season, I was accused of um, single-handedly um, trying to take down the institution of marriage, which I was just like, yeah. <laughs> and from my perspective, I mean, we're going to talk about consensual non-consent. So from my perspective, what I'm doing on open house is like almost mainstream, right? That's like yeah. the thin end of the wedge. Seriously. But I also find it amusing because I am, I mean, I've been non-monogamous, polyamorous for donkey's years and um, I'm married, Right. And we're polyamorous mm. and we are actually married and our marriage is fine. Thank you very much. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's like somehow <laughs> the idea is, is that the, that non-monogamy means only sex and open mm. house. Although we talk about that, unfortunately doesn't actually give the full picture because it's focused on a particular type of non-monogamy, which is, we don't say what type it should be. But the couples coming mm. in are mostly looking for sexual relationships. They're not looking for more full relationships. Having said that, there are a couple of couples that have, their stories were completely separate, but they met in some of the after stuff and they became friends. Um. And so there are some people that actually have established long-term friendships that include sexual activity. And I don't think that's what they thought would happen, right? Yeah. But they've established these relationships having gone through this process together. Oh, man. That just sounds... I mean, it looks like a great house just to spend a weekend with anyway. Like... So I want to talk. I wanted to talk to you today because we we've done a couple of episodes now on what I would call extreme kink. Um, so 
one of the things that I'm really interested in in talking about because we just don't talk about it a lot and I think that's what can make it uh, seem a bit dangerous but consensual non-consent and consensual non-consent sexual activities why why aren't we calling it rape fantasies because it isn't always rape fantasies consensual non-consent is a whole wide range of stuff I think I think people need to understand when we talk about things like consent, I, I work with the personal responsibility and consensual kink model. So mm-hmm. remember way back in the dark ages when people first started talking about this in public, they came up with safe, sane and consensual in order to reassure people that really we're not crazy and everything that we're doing is safe and blah, blah, blah. Well, the reality is a lot of things we do are not safe. Mm. That is, that's not just for this, for kink, it's for everything, right? If mm. you ju- if you decide to skydive, that's not safe. Like you can yeah. take precautions that make it safer, but it's not safe. So people were like, well, maybe we shouldn't call it safe, sane and consensual. And they went on and said, well, maybe we, they went to rack, which is risk aware consensual kink. And the reason that that caused problems was often people felt that it was the top or the dominant who was responsible for informing of the risks. Mm. And so people weren't doing their due diligence and then they were blaming this person when really you're making a decision and you're consenting, you need to be asking questions. It's like if you go to a a medical setting and they say, well, we're going to give you this therapy or these drugs, they'll say some things to you, but it's also up to you to say, are there any other side effects? Are there any other ways that this can interact so that you have fully informed consent? So, We then moved for some people, and I'm one of them, to PRIC, which is Personal Responsibility and Consensual Kink. And I like the acronym, works well. (laughs) But it really really says that you must do your own due diligence. Mm. Um, So when we talk about extreme kinks, that's where this really comes in. And so if you talk about things like breath play, you know, there is no way to make breath play safe. There is, and I mean, I always say, I'm going to say it again because people don't listen. You cannot make breath play safe. You can mediate the risk. And you have a right to choose to do something that's dangerous. And I'm not going to judge you for that. I'll judge you if you don't do your due diligence. Mm. Right? But I'm not going to judge you for what turns you on. I don't yuck people's yums. Right? If that's something that turns you on, and and I myself are... um, into an extreme kinks. So, you know, I'm certainly not going to judge anybody, but what I want people to do is to to really do their due diligence. So consensual non-consent is so controversial because you're giving up in theory, the ability to withdraw your consent. That's in theory, because in reality, you never give up the ability to withdraw your consent. Mm. I don't care if you've negotiated with somebody and you've said, if I scream, no, 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 don't listen to me. If that person, if, if, if you are clearly in extreme distress, there will be a way for you to signal. There should still be a safe word or a signal or something that can get you out of that situation. So the thing is about consensual non-consent is that, that we engage in it in two situations primarily. When you're talking about isolated scenes, right? It's about wanting a realistic experience as opposed to a fluffy fantasy experience of something like rape or interrogation or kidnapping. I mean, I'm just going to say that you just described rape, interrogation and kidnapping as a fluffy experience. But um, 
Uh, no. <laughs> I, I think you can have a, fl- a... Okay, here's a fluffy fantasy experience of rape. Oh, so fluffy fantasy experience. I see. Right, yeah. 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 So the reason you use consensual non-consent is you don't want the fluffy fantasy experience. Right, yeah. You really want the feeling of being out of control as opposed to knowing how much control you have. Mm. And so when when somebody gets raped... They're not choosing the person they're being raped by. Mm. They don't have control over the situation. It's not the same as fantasizing about rape, where you can fantasize your rapist looks like X, Y, Z, or W. They only do these sorts of things to you, right? Even though it can still be a rough fantasy, it looks nothing like the real thing. Because rape isn't about sex. Rape Mm. is about anger and control and sometimes power. So... That the fluffy fantasy rape is is really more of not less of a rape and more of a caveman throw you over the shoulder or cave woman, right? That yeah. sort of thing. Um, and you do consensual non-consent so that you're not making a laundry list of what goes into this scene. So if you're doing consensual non-consent, you're saying, you may say, I have some bottom lines I definitely don't want. Like, please don't permanently mark me. That's on my hard limit list. But you're saying, this is what I want. I want the experience of what it would feel like to be raped by a stranger. Somebody comes upon me in this certain circumstance. You know, I want it rough. I want it humiliating. I want it, you know, and and the person, you negotiate all of this. I advise people not to do this with a stranger. Mm. And you may think, why are you saying that? Because people do. They, They meet somebody at a club or at a party and they organize these scenes somebody they barely know, which is insane. But this goes back to your point about due diligence. This is up to you. You have to make yes. sure that you trust that partner and that partner respects your boundaries rather than it just being like a, someone who you, you don't know, who you haven't got that kind of relationship with. Yeah. So where do you, does that start? When you're trying to find someone who you can... Uh, experiment with non consensual non consent. Maybe you're you're single. Uh, let's start with someone who's single and they're trying to find someone. What are the kind of things that you should be looking out for? Well, if you're trying to find somebody and you're single, then I I would say I always say this to people now. I'm 60 now, and so I've gotten to this place where I tell people to slow the fuck down all the time. <laughs> Good, great point. And I remind people that you're not only going to get one chance at things. I've now lived long enough to understand that you'll always get more than one chance to do the thing you want to do because mm. you can create it. So I now know that. And so I say to people, don't like ignore warning signs and discomfort in your stomach and your intuition because you think it's the only time you're going to get to do this and then have a horrible experience that means that, you know, perhaps you never even want to do this again or you have to have therapy because you're now traumatized. You know, don't don't go about it that way. Take your time. If you meet somebody that you think you're talking about these things with and you think might be a possibility, vet them and vet them well. Vet them in the community. Ask them if there are people they've done this with before that you can talk to. Mm. If they say, I don't want you to talk to anybody I've done it with before. Oh, danger, danger. Bye. Yeah. If they say, I've never done this before, that's okay. But then you need to think really carefully about their ability to not be so involved in it that they can't notice what's going on with you. Mm. You need to make sure you know an awful lot about them. Um, I, I mean, I think it's good to know a lot about the person anyway, but 
with somebody new who's never done it before, I'd want to know a fuck ton about them. I want to know their trauma history. I want to know whether they've ever been abusive to somebody in a relationship. What happens when they lose their temper? How in touch with reality are they? Yeah. Right? Because the, this can become very real very quick. And that's some of the fun of it. But it's not fun if a person's going to definitely go too far. So I would really be taking my time. I would be observing I do things like be out in vanilla world and observe how this person treats wait staff and, and, and service per people, which I tell people to do with relationships anyway, because if this person treats casual contacts as shit, they are not going to be able to keep your emotional well-being top of mind. Mm. I think that's such a, a great point. And also what you were saying about vetting people. I think we, we forget that we can do that. Like if we meet someone on a dating app or like through a, a community thing like FetLife or anything, use that. You Use the context, use Facebook, use, you know, it's it's something that, yeah, if that person wants to do something that, that is like this, then, and they've got, you know, oh, a whole history of it. Absolutely go back and vet them and get things that you know are from a reputable source. Speak to someone face to face on rather than message. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry, yes. I'm giving, I'm giving out. But you're but no, but it's exactly, you're exactly right though. And also I don't care if they're famous in the community. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I, I observed a situation not too long ago with somebody who was an elder in a community and well-known um, and a performance was being, um, was being done. And I observed this person not get consent. Mm. Yeah. And and not even try to get consent. They were so excited about what they were doing. They did not ask for consent. And the person, the other person was okay, but was rather furious afterwards. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, so it's like, just because somebody's well-known and, and, and well-experienced doesn't mean you don't have to check and see, you know, what, how are they likely to behave? What are the things that are going to make it more difficult for them to pay attention? Yeah. Because people don't always do things maliciously, right? People make mistakes, they get triggered. Um, but if you know enough about them and they know enough about you and you're connect well connected enough, you can mediate any of those things, right? And you can come back from any of those things. But if there isn't that good connection there, it becomes a much huger situation. So where do people say someone, so someone's found a connection with someone, whether it's with a partner or with someone that they've met and they've vetted and they, you know, they know properly, where do you start negotiating as protagonist isn't the right word. Um, but if you're the person where you want someone else to be the, how would, what would you call them? The top, the perpetrator? The... I mean, I just use top and bottom um, yeah. to make it easier for people. So the top is the rapist and the bottom is the one who's being raped. So if you are the bottom and you found the right top for you, where do you start the negotiations? What are some of the key things that you need to start putting down? So one of the things that you need to be really clear about for yourself and with your partner is um, what kind of triggers you have. If you are a rape survivor and you want to do this wow. and you haven't had therapy and you still get triggered around your rape, you should not be doing this, period. Mm. And now there are all sorts of people who are like, well, this can be really healing. This reenactment can be healing. Yes, it can. But it can only be that way in a controlled, when it's done in a controlled way. 
And it can't be done in a controlled way unless there's somebody properly looking out for your mental health. So there's some research at the moment that's going on out in California where um, there are some dominants, some tops who work with therapists to help rape victims reenact their experiences. And so they deal with the physical reenactment part and the therapist is on hand after in before for preparation and afterwards for dealing with the emotional part of it for helping to finish processing the emotions and it you know it works really well for some people but i hear a lot in the communities oh well my master my mistress my dominant my top my top helps me through all of that no they don't because they're not qualified to do that and it's unfair to put that on them mm. and so some people who are in that who take that role or who are that way, understand and identify that way, do know enough that they can manage somebody's very real trauma. But most people don't. And if they find themselves in the middle of a situation, you're in the middle of a flashback as the, as the bottom, and you can't communicate that to them. And so they don't know to stop because you're now, you, they don't realize that they are actually the rapist now. Mm, Jesus Christ, that absolutely makes me, I don't know, that feel really put something in my chest, the thought that people would do this as a kind of therapy. I don't know. It feels, it feels so strange. People often, people often use kink and BDSM as a, as a means of therapy. Mm. They use it to express various emotions and people talk about it that way. And it, and, and I'm not saying it isn't therapeutic. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying it can't be healing. It can, but there are dangers associated with that, particularly with consensual non-consent. So if you are doing something and you are prone to flashbacks, actual flashbacks, then you should not be reenacting your rape because you 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 then turn this other person into a rapist. And it doesn't only damage you mm. who are re-traumatized, it actually damages that person mm. who you now are seeing as this monster and you can't come back and you're having trouble coming back from seeing them as a monster. And now they know they've traumatized you. So it's it's a delicate one. So so if you have trauma. First of all, if it's live, please don't don't do this until it's not live anymore. Mm. And so that means get the appropriate help. If you do insist on doing it, because I can't, you know, I say please, but people do what they want to do. You need to be very, very clear and you need to talk about the trauma. That's part of the negotiation. You talk about the trauma. You should always talk about your triggers anyway, because we never know what's going to trigger us. Mm. So if you have, you know, if you have trauma triggers or abuse triggers, you should talk, if you're going to do any kind of scene that involves any kind of violence, then you should be having a conversation. And that includes emotional violence, like humiliation. You should be talking about triggers. You should be talking about the things that help you come out of triggers. You should be talking about the backup you have Mm. and discussing what, what you're going to do. Um, you discuss aftercare for both people and recognize that sometimes you have to get your aftercare from someone else and not from the person that you were playing with. Um, that's another thing I end up having to say a lot. Most people don't realize that it isn't just the bottom who, who can safe word. The top can safe word at any time. Mm-hmm. And not providing aftercare is not abuse. Some people don't have the emotional capacity. Some people find it Um, just find it very difficult. And so you should always negotiate a backup in case somebody gets triggered. 
what kind of aftercare where would people start with aftercare what kind of thing would you recommend okay so for some people so let's say the scene went Mm. well it went well and everybody had a fantastic time but it was very intense scenes over sometimes just a physical touching base in a more gentle way you know a blanket a cuddle some downtime uh, I always re- remind people that, you know, uh, uh, we expend a lot of energy and we have lots of chemicals running through our bodies. So making sure that there's adequate water, there's some sugar, something with sugar, you know, something that'll help you ground and come back into yourself. And aftercare really is about coming back from that scene that you were in to the day-to-day world. So whatever helps you get grounded and centered in yourself. Aftercare for the top, usually in a situation like this is about them seeing reflected in your eyes, their lovable people and not monsters. Mm. So they've just been behaving as monsters and they know that, and it may have been a lot of fun, but society tells us it's totally unacceptable. And so they can feel really insecure about the fact that they've just been a monster and, and be afraid that the bottom is going to see them that way forever. Mm. And they can be afraid that they've damaged the bottom, even though it was all consensual. So aftercare for them is often about, you know, making sure that you're talking to them like the normal human being they are, letting them know that you care about them, letting them know that you see the other sides of them. Sometimes like they'll want to, you know, a total change of emotional and mental space, like so joke around or, you know, just something that makes them go, oh, yeah, that's not who I am. I don't grab people off the street and without consent tear them to shreds it's not my that's not my thing even though I was just pretending to do that that's uh, that's so you just don't think about um the other you know what the other person's going through and you're entirely right they've they've just made themselves out to be a monster but that's obviously not who they are otherwise they wouldn't be doing consensual Mm non-consent so what kind of things should the top put in place so um, the ability to, to touch base with the bottom so they can see that reflected, but also have somebody they can talk about the experience with afterwards. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it doesn't have to be the bottom. Sometimes that doesn't work for the two of them to talk with each other, because if they're both full of emotion, sometimes processing together is difficult. So have, have somebody on, on hand that you can talk with about the experience, that you can talk with about the feelings. Again, whatever it is that makes you feel comfortable and you feel grounded a good meal, some time to sleep, the music that you like, the things that reflect you as the person you want to be, all of those things around you. So arrange that you have those things around you. And then it's a good idea for the top and the bottom to at least touch base 24 hours later, if they haven't, 48 hours later, to just check that the experience was a good one and is okay. Is there any feedback? Is there anything that needs to be changed or dealt with? When it comes to saying what you want to happen, uh, we often get like um, people say, oh, but if I give them a laundry list, then it will be really unsurprising. So but obviously there are boundaries and there are limits. So where do people start and begin both the top and the bottom when it comes to saying what they want, how they want to do it? But but, you know, it's improv. Hey, (laughs) Yeah, it is improv. Okay, so so in a in a scene like this, it's improv, and that's part important because the reason they're doing it is consensual non consent is because they mm. want the realism, right? So that means that I don't get to tell you everything I want you to do to me if mm. you're the rapist because a rapist doesn't do that. 
So usually you don't negotiate the laundry list of wants. What you do is you just make sure you set the no, none of this. This is my boundary. And also that the top is clear about things they won't do. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have sex with you with no lubrication because I'm likely to tear you. And I know that that may be the realistic experience that you want, but I'm not willing Mm. to do that. For example, now some tops are willing to do that. But somebody would be like, yeah, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to take the risk. You know, I'm not going to have anal sex with no lube because I'm not willing to take the risk that I actually cause physical mm. damage, even though repairable damage. I don't want to take that risk. And so it's it's both of you setting those limits. Sometimes it's a time limit. Like, you know, we've got the afternoon for this scene and that has to include setup and breakdown mm. time. And making sure you leave a decent amount of time for aftercare because intense scenes can take talking out. And if you're going to be doing it with each other, like, oh, hey, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. Yeah. You're right. Five minutes after the scene is is can be, you know, that just is not only bad form, but it can really like it can make what was a good experience an awful yeah. experience because it can then everything can then feel very offhand and too yes. realistic. Yeah. Like the person doesn't care about you. So the person who's on the bottom, the realism is to feel during the scene that the person doesn't care about you because the rapist doesn't care about you. But afterwards, you want the person to Mm. care about you. So you don't want the realism to extend beyond the scene. You want that person to care that you had a good time, to care that you're okay. Yeah. I think that's that's quite... um indicative of a lot of kink isn't it that's basically you know what aftercare and kink is you want to be doing this because you want to do it with the other partner and you want the other partner to care about you and want to do that with you it's it's just this showing that you're the best person and I'm you know I've just done this weird thing with you because you're that great yeah yeah no you're special I mean you you do this with somebody who's special you don't do this with somebody who you you know I could care less about because it's really intense it's emotion it's vulnerable yeah and so any of the kinks that you engage in that are deeply emotionally vulnerable you'll get the best experience if you do it with somebody that's special yeah. um the other the other form of consensual non-consent is when people have 24 7 uh, power exchange or authority transfer based relationships mm. those that's a situation in which you agree limits, uh, you create an agree- a written agreement, and those are the limits, and then the person doesn't ask you for consent anymore. Mm. At, but again, you can still, right? Just because you're in a 24-7 relationship doesn't mean that you don't say to, as a bottom to the top or as property to your owner, hey, I'm having trouble with this, or you know that you don't talk about the things that are skirting the edge or may be bothering you or may not feel okay. And that you don't review these things. It's just that the limit limits, and there usually aren't very many of them, limits are decided before you contract, and then you contract, and that's it. So mine never asks me. I mean, I'm in a 24-7 relationship. I'm actually in two. But uh, my main one is with my husband. And um, he never asks me about limits, about what I want to do or don't want to do. He does what he wants. Mm-hmm. And the way our consensual non-consent is, is that sometimes he does things he know I knows I can't stand. But that's, I just want to um, just let everyone know that, that that's because you're in a power exchange relationship. Yeah. Yes, we're in a, but that's another form of consensual non-consent is, is a full-time power mm. exchange. 
So, you know, so in that form, the consent is done is done before the contracting at the contracting. And then you don't ongoing ask for consent for every activity. You just they do what they want to do. But again, it doesn't mean they don't take your feelings into account. They don't take your limits into account. Well, some people don't. And then you don't want to be with them. Right. But what it does mean is that, you know, like he'll do things that I don't like which he has every right to do because in our contract, it's like, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not, but he will, he would never just do things I don't like because then it's no fun because he wants me to get stuff out of it. He tends to do certain things I don't like to push me to like them because there are certain, there's a certain point as a masochist in pain that it becomes pleasurable, whether it's a kind of pain you like or not. And so then that's a real mind fuck, right? Mm. Because like, I'll give you an example. I hate having my feet beaten. Absolutely hate it. And he will beat the hell out of my feet. And there will be a point where I will have a positive experience. You know, I'll get high. I'll be, you know, right. It's like, I'll be flying as a result of it. It will suddenly feel good for a while, Mm. which I hate because I hate, I hate it when he makes me get aroused or feel good about something that um, I didn't want to do in the first place. <laughs> but that sounds like a um, a sort of alchemy, though, of you've got your power exchange relationship, you've got you being a masochist, uh, you've got him and his kinks, and but it's all, it's like a recipe. It is a recipe. You know each of your, each of your ingredients and you know how that works. It's you can't just go, oh well, well, we're in a power exchange relationship now, so then I'm just gonna beat your feet silly. It's because he knows that you're a, a masochist and there is gonna be that point. Well, there's that, but it's also what it more what it's like is like, you know, when someone's a gourmet chef, they don't they don't necessarily use recipes anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that consensual non-consent in a relationship, ongoing consensual non-consent looks like a gourmet chef. Mm. So you have a set of rules that you know about. There are rules of cooking that, that make cooking work. That's your contract. Those are your limits. And then the gourmet chef creates. He creates with his ingredients or she creates or they create with their ingredients. And the 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 submissive or the bottom or the slave, that's the ingredients. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. It is. It's and I use that deliberately because it is absolutely delicious. But it is an it, it and it is another example of consensual non-consent. And if you make a bad partner choice and you enter into a relationship with somebody with that kind of a strict sense of consensual non-consent, so you've basically to a degree given up your ability to withdraw your consent, then it can become it can become quite abusive. So again, it's about, you know, slow the fuck down, take the time to get to know the person, vet the person, make sure that in your contract, the two of you are building in ways to review because we grow and change, but also building in ways to raise issues when issues arise. And if somebody's saying to you, no, that's not acceptable, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm taking over responsibility for you and we don't need ways for you to, right? because I will be the all-seeing, all-knowing Oz, right? <laughs> um, then then you should run a mile, right? Because that's that's a setup. That's o- always going to be a bad thing. That's a fantasy that you read in a piece of erotica. Reality isn't somebody who reads your mind and always does the right thing. Yeah, that is such a great point. If there was, if there was let's say, like one of the biggest 
red flags to look out for when you're starting this journey and whether it's on your own with a partner what are some of your let's say like three big things for you what would be your your final top tips for people if somebody um if you are talking with somebody about this and like trying to negotiate doing this um and they are too focused on the physical sexual stuff that should give you pause Mm -hmm. if they're treating this like a flogging or a spanking which is a much more straightforward scene they're focused on how exciting it's going to be to take you down like do a physical takedown how exciting it's going to be right and they're not and they're like giving a list of the things that they want and checking particular activities with you and not talking about like like the emotional part of this and and the power exchange part of this because that is part of this um, and the level of reality. And th- they're not asking questions about whether or not there are any things that you are concerned about or you have any triggers or do you have any health issues, right? Do you have any limitations? Then I would, that's the, the biggest red flag for me. Anybody who's got this mm. huge scenario in their head and can't listen to it any concerns you raise, but also are not actively pursuing to find out the concerns you raise from the bottom. um, If somebody has a really rigid script in their head um, and they know that they have active trauma and they're not in therapy and they haven't had therapy and they don't have um, clear support people for emotional things. And they're asking you to recreate their trauma run. Mm. I love that. I love that. It's, it's, it's equal. I love that there's things on both sides that each one can look out for. It's not just, oh, as a bottom, here's all the things you need to put in. It's like, no, there's there's equal there's things both. on both sides where you can both make sure that you have a, a fun and enjoyable time. And at the end of the day, this is about sex and relationships, which are like the most fun things you can have in life. Absolutely. So it is about keeping it a fun thing for people to do um and just make sure that everyone has everything in place to make it the best time they can if people want to get hold of you or they want to find out a bit more about you where can they find you the easiest way is my website which is drlauriebethbisbee.com and on just about every page of my website there is a sign up for my mailing list which is a great idea because um I will let you know what's going on and you get discounts in there in there. So you're the first person to find out and you get discounts. And on my website, there's an events page, which at the moment is just about to be updated. If you want to come see me in person, I'm doing a tour of the UK. I've been doing it for, for a number of months now. It's ramping up even more with a talk called the psychology of fetish and kink. That is part of um, seed talks are the ones who organize this. Those dates can be found on my website, but also um, Seed Talks and I post, both of us post on social media. If you prefer social media, I'm at Dr. Bisbee on um, Instagram and X. Um, and on uh, TikTok, I'm at Laurie Beth UK. Brilliant. That's so great. Thank you so much for talking to us, Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee. My pleasure. 
I have once again delved into the fun bags and I asked you for your stories of when you might have had a few moments on the old menopause. So Callie uh, on Instagram, she says, my periods became erratic last year. So I thought I was cruising nicely into my menopause when they stopped completely over Christmas. But whilst my ovaries might have been closing down, it turns out they were having a last minute fire sale. Now I'm about to have my first child at 45. <laughs> She's got a little question mark at the end. I would say that if you got pregnant over Christmas, then you really should find out by now. You would know. <laughs> Congratulations, I guess. Commiserations. <laughs> oh, Callie, I hope it goes well for you. Um, Tina, she says, heart palpitations, panic attacks and blood baths when my periods eventually happen. Any help? That is, that is a message from a desperate woman. Oh, Tina, my heart goes out for you. Look, we've got loads of episodes about menopause. So take a look in the archive. Uh, yes, a lot of them revolve around sex and masturbation. But look, at least that's free and you don't need an appointment for it. I'm Miranda Kane on Instagram, where you can slide into my DMs, Twitter as Miri Kane, or email smutdrop at metro.co.uk. I've been Miranda Kane. Smut Drop was produced by Pineapple Audio Production for metro.co.uk. If you are enjoying this weekly dollop of audio erotica, then please leave me a nice review. In the meantime, I'll be back to prick up your ears next week. And remember, don't do anything I wouldn't do, but if you do, then name it after me.